0: Welcome to the Geek and Review, the podcast focused on innovative and creative ideas in the legal profession. I'm Marlene Gebauer,
1: and I'm Greg Lambert. So, Marlene, this week once again we find out why in legal we, <laughs> we can't, can't have, have good, nice things. <laughs> nice things. So, uh, you may may have seen that uh, there uh, there was a I filing, an, an appeal filing in the Tenth Circuit. Uh, it was an ex parte case, but it was actually reviewed by an attorney, um, yep. a 23-year-long a pra- practicing attorney mm-hmm. um, that had somewhere in the area of eight made-up citations that, that, you know, I, and I can tell you, I took that brief and I, I uh, passed it through Lexis's uh, brief analyzer, and it immediately mm-hmm. found those eight. Yep. So, you know, Said, nope. again, uh, nope. so... So, word of advice, and I I went around, I I was in Dallas uh, this week uh, talking AI with the attorneys there. And the one thing I told them is this is not a legal research, pure legal research tool. Please do not use citations uh, that, that are in there. And if you and if, if you if do, you some, better check them. <laughs> yeah, and if, if something sounds too good to be true, it probably is. So, yeah, uh, it's, it's just yeah. trying
0: to please you. It's just trying to make you happy.
1: Absolutely. You know? Absolutely.
0: <laughs> We'd like to welcome three guests today. Oliver Bethel, Chief Technology Officer, Sean Curran, Director of Legal Technology, and Sam Lansley, Artificial Intelligence Manager from Traverse Smith from their London office. Sean, Ollie, and Sam, welcome to The Geek and Review.
1: Thanks, Colleen. So Ali, I want to throw this to you first because we do have, although we have a lot of uh, audience in the UK and Australia, may not be familiar with Travers Smith. So would you mind just giving us an overview of what Travers Smith does and exactly what your team does to support the mission there?
2: Absolutely. And, And look, Greg, Marlene, thank you very much for the invitation to come and join you today. I've been a long time listener, but it's great to be able to join you for the first time as a contributor. So Travis Smith, we're a a UK law firm, but we're a a leading full-service UK law firm. Uh, We regularly conduct cutting-edge and industry-first work for clients across lots of industry sectors, but we've particularly carved out a market-leading reputation for our expertise in international asset management, uh, cross-border M&A, and also particularly global dispute resolution investigations work, so really a a full-service firm. And the team here, we're we're part of the the wider technology team here at, at Travis Smith, and uh, very lucky to work with Sean and Sam on uh, on our strategy for AI, which hopefully we're going to get to touch on today.
0: I imagine the past year or so has been absolutely insane for the three of you uh, with the advancements in technology, the acceptance and the demands made of apis, and of course the awakening of the public to generative AI. Sean, how have the expectations of attorneys and others there at Travers Smith changed the way you approach and launch technology at the firm?
3: I think for for you know, I've been in the legal tech industry now for about twenty years and <clears throat> Uh, I, I sort of Our talk sympathies. about this a lot, which, it, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I was, I was around, you know, before the digitization of, of legal services, when everything was paper-based and when we used to archive files physically and we didn't have document management systems. And, you know, I've been through a lot of many revolutions over the last 20 years. So I think document management was one, and I think, you know, the BlackBerry was one and, and I think there's been a few others, but the improvements of the technology have always been quite marginal, I think. Uh, so, you know, let's say there was a process that was 90% people, people processing 10% tech, then a new piece of technology would come out, a new feature, a new product that would maybe make that 12% tech or 13% tech, taking a little bit of, eating a little bit of the, the people in process. Um, I certainly think with a lot of the hype on AI over the last uh, eight months, there is a sort of expectation that the tech is going to eat everything a law firm does that equation is going to go to 100% tech and, and 0% people in process. Um, and that has been quite challenging, I think, for for for, for people to operate in. Uh, so we took the strategy very early on that we needed to get our hands on this technology, get it in front, get, or get our hands on generative AI, get it in front of our lawyers, get them testing it, getting them understanding what it's good at and, and, and what it's not so good at. Um, to understand where there was opportunities for Uh, marginal gain efficiency with this tech and where there's also opportunities for significant efficiency Uh, and I think we'll probably come on to talk to um, a couple that that, that we've picked up on. And so we deployed an enterprise chatbot about eight months ago and I think one of the first firms to do that blocked ChatGPT very early. Uh, We didn't want to be granting an irrevocable worldwide royalty-free license to our data to to Big Tech and to to OpenAI and we've been Testing and trialing these models uh, across the, the the business since then, trying to understand exactly where we should put our focus. I don't know, Sam, if there's anything you'd add.
4: Yeah, I think just all I'd add to that is that we've been very open and transparent with what the model can and can't do. I know sometimes more technical people can choose to try and exaggerate the technology, which has sometimes produced a bit of skepticism from lawyers. We've been very honest about the hallucination problems, and we've kind of explained to the lawyers that we have to be really careful. Um, when using it to develop certain contracts or anything like that. So we've been very cautious with our approach. And we've also taken the approach of basically showing what it's good at and showing what it's bad at. And to try and do that, we basically introduced community into our YCM bot, which essentially allows lawyers to promote something it's good at and also promote something it's bad at. And then they can have a bit of a discussion as to why it's bad and why it's good. So that, the idea there is that we're just trying to make lawyers really aware of how to use the technology and how not to use the technology. I think that's been really useful for helping them kind of get at the expectations of what it can do and what it can't do. And,
0: and they are using that community?
4: Yeah, they are using that community. It's like a whole social network. They're liking, they're commenting on it, and we're finding some really useful prompts from it.
1: And Sean, I wanted to, to elaborate on something that you said you said you, you had uh, blocked chat GPT early on do you mean uh, for your users to use it or for open AI to come in and uh, and kind of scrape your materials or
3: yeah so we I, I think um, Ollie and I actually were, were out for a beer in uh, November I think or December and it was Ollie actually who talked to me about this and said have you seen this new technology called chat GPT and, and he talked about the sophistication I thought you know, I, you know, I've not, not heard of it but clearly if it's got the ability to ask and answer questions then it's going to be phenomenal but the concern is going to obviously be around um, making sure that you don't improve the model by giving it data and asking the models uh, provide me a change of control clause you're just getting a version of that from Wikipedia or lawteacher.net and that's one thing providing it a change of control clause which is proprietary, valuable, intellectual property for that organisation and then asking it to provide some analysis on that we, we recognized that that may be, I'm not saying that it is, but it may be a certain strategy for companies who are using data-to-train algorithms to improve the quality of the algorithms. So um, it, I think it was January, we were like, we need to block, we looked at the terms um, of ChatGPT and we knew that all of our lawyers who may be dabbling with it and testing and trialing it, were in- agreeing to the consumer terms because we didn't have an enterprise relationship with OpenAI. And those consumer terms we were very explicit in saying that your content will be used to improve our services. And we thought, no, that's not, it's not acceptable for us. We blocked ChatGPT January, February, and Sam and his team, um, i actually within about two or three weeks, built a really thin chatbot layer uh, that sat on top of the enterprise APIs of OpenAI. So we became a B2B customer of theirs, and it sat on top of the enterprise APIs, which meant that we were not subject to the same consumer terms we were subject to enhanced enterprise terms i.e. they couldn't take our data to improve and develop services and we then looked to roll that out in a more safe and secure way but we did so um, with the kind of uh, badge of experimentation and education this wasn't to be used in work product, we're very concerned about hallucination, we're very concerned about copyright, Um, we're concerned about an outlier risk but the potential legality of the model having scraped the web and question marks around that but we do want our lawyers to understand the sophistication of this technology and with all of that hype that it was existing out there in the market you couldn't not do anything right you know you couldn't just hold and wait you had to give them something but you had to do it in a safe and secure way and that was effectively our strategy so I think in March we rolled out an enterprise version of our own chatbot which we developed internally and we had full logging and auditing capabilities on that mm. so we can track if it's been used
1: so, Sam, I noticed that, uh, and I and I love the fact that your title is AI Manager, um, and I, I'm assuming that's a, a long-term uh, title that you've had for multiple years, right? So,
4: <laughs> yep, yep, for 25 <laughs> years at least. Um, no. <laughs> just to be really clear on the AI Manager title, that does involve people. It's not me just managing an artificial intelligence, but um, so I think... Um, Yeah, obviously the title is a reflection of the unique demand that was put on our firm and every firm in the last three to six months. I think prior to this, obviously I was a software engineer inside the engineering team. We did focus heavily on AI as well. We actually won an award for it at COGX with our platform Toner, which was a review and labeling platform for Um, reviews that we would do internally Um, but yeah I think obviously we decided in March that it was probably a good thing to create a whole separate team which could really focus on this generative AI and how it could be leveraged inside the firm and I think obviously the um, decision there was made by the firm that I'd be the right person to lead that team and um, obviously now we're looking to expand the team more and more I think we've looked into hiring you know MLOps people machine learning engineers software engineers and it has produced already a tremendous amount of value for the firm.
1: Um, Have you if you got, I know that there's a, a big push for prompt engineers. Are, are you guys looking to hire someone specifically, or how are you training people to, to you know, kind of manufacture those prompts in a good way?
4: At the moment, obviously, the community feature we added into YCM Bot has been tremendously helpful. That's allowed lawyers to kind of come up with prompts themselves and share useful ones. Uh, I think we probably will look into prompt engineering in the future. Uh, you can kind of see the quality difference between a really sophisticated prompt and a really poor prompt. So I think it's something we will definitely explore. I think someone does maybe need to be dedicated to that to get the best out of the models. But it's going to be a really interesting field. It's it's crazy how that prompt engineer no one even would have thought you know, that would exist, you know, six months ago. And all of a sudden now, I think nearly everybody's going to be hiring prompt engineers in the next couple of years. We've been working with this model now for the last eight months on an experimental
3: and educational basis. But part of that experimentation in education is working with our clients and looking at whether there is ways for us to use this in certain instances. Um, and so because we've got, right now, you know, six months ago, we were B2B customers of OpenAI. Now we are B2B customers of Microsoft. We've got access to the GPT models in Europe, actually in Amsterdam. And it's just another cognitive services API that we use regularly for what the work that we do. So we've been testing it a little bit more, engaging with clients on that. um, And we have been sampling certain types of use cases, particularly around the um, search for relevance in litigation and discovery. And what we've found already is that um, the way that the lawyers might instruct a human to look for relevance is completely different to the way that you architect and structure prompts to search for relevance. And there's a kind of computational law aspect, there's a computer science aspect and a legal aspect all kind of being sandwiched together. Um, And we have, you know, I've been involved in a couple of these where I've really enjoyed understanding the facts of the case, the point of issue, the particular area that the legal team would like to hone in on, on that set of data. And then the way to ask the question to get the right outcome and the right output from the models. I think, that's going to be I don't we Ollie and I were talking about this yesterday. I think you know what that's going to be, whether it's prompt engineer or whether it's kind of like legal intelligence engineer or something, but there's certainly an area between the law and the computational aspect of these models that needs to be a gap that needs to be filled with some form of skill set that's going to need to evolve.
0: Well, Sean, that that raises a a really good point. You know, Ali, I know you've been working with uh, Michael Bomarito. Hi, Michael. And Dan Katz at 273 Ventures on uh, Gen AI resources like the YCN bot, uh, which we're going to dive into. But, you know, first, what sparked your interest in exploring how Gen AI, you know, as Sean mentioned, there's sort of this gap that needs to be filled between that and the law. What got you interested in sort of delving into that area.
2: Uh, Sure. Shout out to Mike and Dan because they've been great to work with so far on this. As Sean said, we were having one of our um, particularly in-depth one-to-one meetings in a pub around the corner one evening, and we had quite a long-standing strategy around application of artificial intelligence that Sam was spearheading, mainly around extractive AI, so similar to technologies such as Kira. Which was, which was going well and proceeding in the, way, in the way that we'd expected. And then having, I mean, I'm an avid technologist, so reading about the capabilities of ChatGPT obviously set up many light bulbs in my head. I remember the conversation with Sean. Imagine instead of being able to extract a clause, you could say, then say, write me a clause that sounds like this, that is buyer-friendly, that is competitive, that is off-market, however you choose to describe it. And, and we had this theoretical conversation back and forth, which then led to, to Sean and Sam and, uh, and several members of the team starting to investigate what, what was possible. Um, and really since then it's, it's been Sean and Sam spearheading what, what we've done around, um, the open source projects and what we're doing latterly. I think what's been most interesting has been initially, we were look, obviously looking at the generative use cases, but what's impressed me is the, is the reasoning potential. So there's, we're going to talk quite a bit about hallucination today, and it's obviously a concern for the legal industry around the risk of hallucination. But there is so much capability there today around the ability to, to reason. And I think that's where we're starting to have some interesting uh, experiments at this stage. And, and we're just, we're just uncovering and unear- unearthing what the potential of this technology could be.
0: When you say reason, can you expound a little bit more on that?
2: Yeah, absolutely. So. so um, so when we think about, to slightly incorrectly answer your question, when we think about generative, we're asking it to create new content. So um, write me a clause or prepare a um, a citation. So it's generating almost new content, which carries with it all of the risks of copyright and hallucination, which, which we'll dive into. But if you were to ask a question such as, um, does this batch of emails contain any concerning language or any derogatory language? That That is a sort of more of a reasoning exercise. So you're not asking it to generate anything new, and, uh, but you're asking it to carry out a task that would be very difficult to programmatically describe using previous generation technologies because you would have to train the model on what you meant by all of those different things. But straight out of the box, we're seeing this huge capability. And I think clearly lots of legal tech vendors are seeing the same thing. So all of the announcements by the big platform providers... That are saying they're bringing these capabilities to market, and I think one of your previous podcast episodes talked about a lot of technology that's being launched by press release at the moment. But clearly, the capability is there; it's just about being able to harness it. I think
1: that's a very polite way to put it. <laughs> In a, innovation by press release—I call it. Yeah. Um, Sean, we kind of touched on this, but I want—I want to I pick your brain a little bit more on. Uh, some of the due diligence that you, that you've done with the generative AI, um, and it sounds just from you know the brief conversation that we've had uh, right now is that you have both a passion for the technology, but also a, a passion for understanding how the the legal process works as well. Um, so, what have you seen as some of the biggest obstacles in preventing generative AI tools from Accurately conducting, you know, legal work and processes, and how did that coming to under, you know, to understand those obstacles help you in setting up a use case for the, the YCN bot there at uh, Trevor Smith?
3: Yeah, so I think to to follow on from what what Ollie has said, um, we we are we have a slide know <clears throat> we can't show it on this, but we have a slide which um, is a bit of a spectrum between generative use cases and extractive use cases and on the generative side we've got issues with hallucination and copyright you know it, it, the, the more creative the model the more risk there is for hallucination the the, the more verbatim the output is then the, the higher the risk there is of copyright because you know it's verbatim exactly taken from a website that had a prohibited use clause that said don't scrape me so on that generative side we just like for us right now it's like high risk low value we're not too interested so the obstacle is um, figuring out whether we actually want to be providing legal advice, which is a derivative of publicly available data sources like LawTeacher.net and, and Law.net and all, all these you know websites, so that needs to all be figured out. We're not going to come out and say um, we're using generative AI to draft contracts. So that's an obstacle. But but on the extractive side, um, we we haven't really come across any obstacles. And um, to, to Ollie's point, that is where we see the most value immediately and over the shortest term. And we think that if we're to talk about legality of the models, sort of big problem that's that's occurring, using the reasoning engine of the model is the furthest away from risk using generative, you're creating content there's copyright issues you give that you we you draft a contract, we give that to a client we try and draft we try and grant them right and title of the copyright of that output. The clients then got contaminated content based from us, based on OpenAI, based on a website is scraped and there's a kind of daisy chain of, of, of copyright there that's a bit of an issue. But but on the extractive side, we we in the reasoning side, sorry, the reasoning side, yes, the models wouldn't be as sophisticated as they were today if they didn't ingest the internet. In doing so that has um the potentially scraped websites that they weren't you know, maybe weren't supposed to cop- taking copyright they weren't supposed to. But we're giving it, asking a human a question who's really smart. We're giving it most of the data, and we're just asking it to compute on a very specific point. And so we don't really see any obstacles on that side, and that's the area that we're going to focus on.
1: Have Have you seen that the discussion around generative AI and just the hype, and it, and it reminds me of the interview that we had a few weeks ago with uh, Tony Ty from from Hyperdraft, and that there are certain tools that do very well at certain tasks and right now there's this kind of idea that generative ai can do it all um have you been able to leverage the the hype and excitement around the the generative ai to point people back to the tools that you've actually had maybe for years that say You know, okay. This has AI in it too. Why don't you use this because this is much better at you know drafting documents or or uh, uh, reviewing uh, certain things? Has has that helped in that?
3: Yeah, I mean, this is why you know eight months ago when companies law firms were coming out and saying that overnight they had decided to, as far as it seemed, pivot their entire uh, document automation and document production strategy to an LLM model that was trained on the internet to seem to me to be, um, a bit counterintuitive because as you see, you've got those, these businesses, our business and and many law firms have got clause banks, we've got document automation investment, we've got precedent banks, we've got content management systems with tags that are rich and useful to find documents or clauses that are relevant. We've got buy side and sell side, you know, we've got tons of information that almost definitely surpasses what the model can produce. So those are the kind of use cases where we didn't jump in and actually we think that we should continue to use the technologies that we have because there isn't a transformational um, difference there. To to jump on a point that Ori made, we've been working on AI for the last four years and it's been around the entity extraction use case, key to luminance, is it a restrictive covenant? Is it a change of control clause? This natural language ability of the model where you can explain much more context, give it the background of a case, tell it about the contract that it's reviewing, stitching together amendments and variations across a large set, whatever it is. You can give the model this context and it can then provide a natural language output, which it's not 100%, sometimes it's wrong, sometimes humans get it wrong. But um, the work product that you get back from the model in the form of an Excel spreadsheet with documents down the left, questions along the top, it wouldn't be impossible to discern the difference between that that Excel spreadsheet being created by an AI bot or a human. Some will be wrong, some will be right, but it's, as I said, it's not a million miles away from, from Junior. I think that's revolutionary. I think that's game-changing. I think it's new. And some people will say, well, we've had semantic search for a while. True. So the ability to cross-reference based on meaning and context, not text. But we've never really had contextual natural language input with contextual natural language output as an API. I mean, that is, in my view, new, and it's and, and I think Sam would degree, it's revolutionary. I was on a, a round table with the Financial Times in March and there was lots of other firms. And there was a question as to whether this was, re- re- Gen was revolutionary or evolutionary. Was it marginal gain efficiency, significant gain efficiency? My view is it's certainly revolutionary, um, but it, it's not going to solve for all problems. But actually, it might solve a really big pain point for legal, which is that we are in the industry of assessing risk, and that most of the time we don't have enough time to read all of the information to assess the risk appropriately. And that is now what's going to change, which I think is going to be a game changer for the legal services industry.
0: I wanted, Sean, I wanted to go back to your point about contaminated data um, in the context of. Are you guys seeing any challenges in terms of clients saying, you know, I don't want, um, you know, I don't want my data used in terms of, you know, drafting things like, you know, I don't want that, you know, I don't want other, you know, competitors to sort of gain from that. Um, Is is that something that you're seeing, and how are you addressing that?
3: Uh, So we we're not seeing that because we are not at this point offering any. Generative use cases of the model, mm-hmm. um, and we are very clear with their lawyers that they shouldn't be offering generative use cases of the model, both in terms of copyright risk and hallucination risk. Uh, you know, we might come on to talk a little bit later about hallucination is all you need, the paper that we wrote. But um, just because a just because a case exists or doesn't exist doesn't necessarily mean that if it does exist, it's been referenced or or, or quoted correctly and it hasn't made up some fact that you know, takes the advice in a different direction or causes issue um, so we we just on the generative side we're just we're not there yet in terms of having issues with our clients because we're not promoting that side mm-hmm. when we get a big job and it's a kind of analyse lots of stuff and ask and answer lots of questions of stuff to get a view of risk that's where we are starting to say to the legal teams look you, you know your clients may be dabbling with ChatGPT GPT or an enterprise chat corporation why don't we start the conversation now to see whether they would like us to do in parallel review with AI you do it on a human basis and we'll have an AI review alongside and we'll just let them see what the output is and we can cross-reference that and we can see what we think in terms of the output we just take the clients on that journey you know and, and a lot of our clients are we had a, a, a breakfast with a lot of our GCs they are very interested in AI they want to understand how it can be applied to the businesses that they work in but also their legal departments And we're trying to have that conversation early on because it's not, it's not going to go away. My view is that it's not, you know, I've got certain views about blockchain and smart contracts. And um, I think this is perhaps a lot more enduring and I don't think this innovation is going to go away. Uh,
0: Sam, I'm going to jump to you. Uh, uh, There was an article in May, which talked about how you were approaching YCN bots functionality and you proposed multi-model as one solution. Can you walk us through how that approach would work and what impact it might have?
4: Yeah, of course. So one of the things we're seeing is everybody becoming extremely dependent on open AI or is there open AI? So they're dependent on this one model that's being created by this one company. And for us, we thought that first of all, it was a massive risk. We would be completely dependent on one company for all the innovation in this space. Given how important we think generative AI could be to the firm, we didn't think that would be the right approach. Uh, the risks possibly being, obviously, this company could get quite restrictive in their usage. They might start you know, adding terms that we can't comply with. They may start limiting access to it, um, which obviously would be a disaster if we built a large strategy on top of that. There's also in terms of just innovation, though, and I think just you know, the development of nearly any technology has benefited from a wide array of companies and people working together to develop a product. and I think with us, we looked at this multi-model approach and we said, okay, for YCM bot, this chatbot interface is going to be crucial for the way we deploy this technology internally. And we looked at it and went, okay, we can't just be dependent on OpenAI. We may want to integrate with other vendors like uh, Google and use their BARD API. We may want to develop our own model and interact with it completely from scratch. So I think one of the things uh, we looked at and said, okay, we need to keep obviously using this technology because they are the front runners at the moment, but we need to be able to have an option. So what we did with our YCM bot was we made it extremely easy to plug in a brand new model and you could just use it as if you were using you know, OpenAI or Bard or any other model.
0: So, Sean, in, in preparing for this interview, you brought up the idea of multi-tokenization with AI and common law. And can you can you tell the listeners more about this so that they get the benefit of, of our conversation from earlier? Yeah.
1: So so they can be yeah. as excited when, uh, about it when we heard it the first exactly.
3: time. So. Absolutely. We would encourage anybody who hasn't already to to look at uh, or to, to review um, our Hallucination is All You Need paper. Um, and to summarize, this paper basically says that the subtle non-obvious errors in generated common law and case law from these models provide a significant or create a significant risk for our industry which is that those subtle non-obvious errors may be um, fed into motions to to the court. The judge may accept certain arguments. They may miss the fact that previous common law has been slightly misquoted because it sort of had the same semantic meaning or there was a subtle word difference because the model just generates the next slightly word. That may get fed into a new judgment and we potentially contaminate case law um, by, by continuing to do that. So regulation and legislation, lower risk because that's a very centralized process and the chance of that happening is low. But when you've got a decentralized process like common law, where you've got um, a circuit court in the foothills of Wisconsin with one judge and one local solicitor, the probability, and, and perhaps uninformed on um, AI, the probability of them m- you know, double checking the case, it exists, taking the facts of the case, using it to support their argument, and then that being wrong is much higher. And that's a risk that we've highlighted and we think was really concerning. So in your paper, we talked to how you could perhaps solve for that. And so um, w- w- when the model is providing outputs um, uh, on common law, and it sort of says, the facts of the case are this, this is my, the judge says, the facts of the case are this, this is my opinion, and I'm making this decision based on inverted commas, the, the, the decision that has come before it uh, a thousand times or two thousand times or three thousand times. It is possible that the model swaps outwards when it's, when it's writing inside that quote. It's possible that it puts in a different quote. We had examples in the paper where the cause of action definition was switched with a more technical legal version, it was switched with a more easy to understand version from a different set of common law. But it was sort of saying, in you know, this case, this is the cause of action definition, but actually it was a different cause of action, de- de- action definition. So we were sort of talking about how we potentially solve for that. And the multi length tokenization approach is that when we're tokenizing models, which is breaking up words, so here's an input sequence, here's the next word. When you get to the next word and you're going, oh, this is a judge talking, and this is a quote that exists in, Million times in common law, you know, from Car- Carbolic Smoke Ball Company or you know, Donohue versus Stevenson. We're not gonna, we're not gonna probabilistically guess the next word inside these quotes. We're gonna take verbatim every single word. And so when you're building your models and you're tokenizing, the idea is that when you tokenize that quote, you take it, you take the whole thing. You don't break it up based on word. don't sort of so it's not guessing the next word it's guessing the next word up to the point in which it has to guess the next quote because we cannot um manipulate in any way the spoken word of a judge um and so it's just one idea to try and to try and resolve this the way that Lexis are dealing with this which is really sensible is they take the quote and they search for it and they make sure it exists and they rank it and they know it's important and that's sensible and that's smart but it's this idea that we could get that right at the model creation in the model architecture phase, rather than after the fact, always checking if the model's okay, just make the model better at its source. So it's a sort of theoretical, um, it's, a, it's a theoretical uh, approach to trying to resolve the um, issues of hallucination within uh, the leading industry. Sure, Sean, in your, in, in your
2: research, didn't you come across some examples of where case law citations have been incorrectly summarised by judges? And therefore if a model was to use a probabilistic outcome, it would just potentially regurgitate mistakes.
0: It would regurgitate human error.
1: Yeah.
3: Yeah. Um, so so there, was, so there was one instance where a, a court in Belfast in Northern Ireland quoted Denning talking about the big red hand, the more onerous and unusual a term, the more notice has to be provided to it, and the judge... Uh, or the clerk of the court, whoever writes up the judgment, misspelled the word read and instead the word read was in the judgment and we were doing a comparison between the, you know, what the actual um, quote says and we remember looking at that one and going, oh interesting, the model has provided the word read instead of read, we got it the other way round, but we thought it was the model who got it wrong but actually it was the it's judge who got it wrong <laughs> and the model... The model corrected it by putting in read because probabilistically read was more relevant than read was more relevant than read, which is fascinating. But that's the exception to the rule. I don't want people to say that um judges are rubbish in the eyes better. But, yeah. but most of the time <laughs> most of the time the model was um you should look at the paper, but it was it was what the model was suggesting so basically what we did, we took a judgment and we took a bit of text and we would ask the model to fill it in. What the model was suggesting was semantically the same. But it was—it wasn't word for word, so was, which was amazing. Like the model understood the case law, understood the context, understood what it was meant to do, and it explained, you know, the quote. So the big, you know, the more onerous and unusual the term, the more notes has to be provided to. It, it might have said something like, um, "the quote," you know, the term has to be obvious. So it kind of gets the point, it understands the point, but it's not quoting it perfectly. That might be a, a close enough synonym as a quote that it doesn't really matter. It doesn't take the advice off in a different direction, or it might be so. You know it may take it off in a different direction and then the advice might depend on that and then that potentially causes cause a serious issue so that's is the kind of genesis of the paper um and so yeah we, that's why we were we, and then we articulate that to our lawyers and we talk about we showed them the cause of action definition switch out and say would you notice that in practice and they go oh my god yeah cool we're not going to touch this for legal research yeah
1: you know uh you you probably made every legal geek uh, lean over and turn up the volume on this last <laughs> <What>? part because <laughs> cause it's super super interesting and i think it's something mm-hmm. that answers a lot of questions and and kind of settles a lot of doubt that people have on how how are we going to stop with the hallucination issue how are we going to get past this uh, eventually and and we will but i think this is the the most clear answer i've heard on how we get past uh hallucinations of eventually so uh thank you for that and i, I did want to say we're going to put a link uh to to the paper which is called hallucination is the last thing you need um which is on the uh archive.org uh site um great great read um i usually don't read these types of <laughs> articles but uh um, i i went through this one i love how uh, you know essentially it, you had what one in every 20 or one in 20 uh results were actual actually correct in in quoting uh the resources uh so you know if if you're a, a legal geek like like i am this is definitely a, a must read so thank thanks to the three of you for writing that it was great so um ollie i want to want to turn back to you and and kind of talk more we've We've mentioned the the YCN bot uh, a number of times, and and I do want to clarify that and tell me if I'm wrong, that YCN stands for your company name, right? You got it. (laughs) And uh, so would you mind just kind of giving us a high-level overview of what the YCN bot does? uh, And more importantly, uh, talk about why uh, you decided there at Trav... Trevor smith that you you know dedicated the resources in building this and, and developing it but then you're turning around and you're making this an open source project so that basically anyone can go out and and use the sweat of your labor uh to to have access to this so what was the reasoning behind that
2: yeah so to start off with start off at the top uh, ycm bot your company name bot, is the product that sean described earlier on in the episode which is a chatbot interface to allow people to use or benefit from the capabilities of generative AI, specifically uh, chat GPT models, but through a safe enterprise environment. And it was something that we thought was necessary in order to give our people the ability to be able to use and experiment and learn from this technology, but provide some safety around it. We provided that safety through the enterprise terms with initially OpenAI and then Microsoft, but also with some additional terms of use that just guide people and And then we were able to add some new features such as person's name, entity recognition, which is the ability to spot if we were inputting a prompt that contained an individual's name or perhaps the result might have somebody's name. And we subsequently added an override for that, but just certain, I guess, governance safety features that have allowed us to be able to use this technology in a safer way as possible. That gave us the ability to be able to have really fantastic conversations internally so people could experiment, we could have these great discussions, but we also recognized there was real potential for our clients and the community to be able to use this as well. And we've got a longstanding history that we're really proud of of open sourcing technology. So we did that with other products such as MapMail and also our original uh, document labeling platform, Etatona, that, that Sam was involved or actually pioneered and wrote so we open sourced that we made that available and it's been a fantastic way for us to be able to demonstrate our capability have great conversations with people in the community but also it's been really fantastic for att- uh, um, attracting and retaining talent as well so we, we see that as part of, a big part of our people proposition um, so y- YCM bot has been great we, we obviously promoted that uh, we've had some fantastic discussions with clients and also um, other, other law firms as well. And we believe that several businesses have taken it and implemented it. Um, we've done it under the least restrictive license, which is MIT, which is great because we believe in that. Um, however, that doesn't uh, prevents us from being able to see actually who has deployed it. But but we understand, as I say, several businesses have. And, and if we can play some small part in businesses being able to safely use this technology, then, then we're really proud of that.
0: So what was the collaboration like with uh, 273 Ventures on the YCN bot?
4: So our collaboration with Dan and Mike is they were a big part of us deciding to um, make the mod- make the platform more friendly to multiple different model types. So I think before we actually built the interface, we decided quite early on that it would be worth investing in an interface that could be user friendly and allow us to consume enterprise APIs. But I think what was really useful was talking to Dan and Mike is they explained how useful it would be to be able to open it up to different GPT models. And I think based on that, we actually added those features to it. They also had a little bit of look over the code, gave us some advice on that. But yeah, that was probably the most of the um, collaboration between us and 273 Ventures. Yeah. And I think the one thing I'd just add to that is
3: we've now been open sourcing for four years. We open source enterprise technology that you know we all believe we could potentially sell. But what we're finding is that a lot of Law firms who want to take that technology don't have the sophistication of an engineering team who could implement it. And so we are trying to create partners in the industry who have a bit of an engineering ability or capability to potentially be able to support taking that open source code and implementing it within law firms. Obviously, we don't get a benefit from that commercially, but it means that people can benefit from the the product.
1: So I've been going around my firm giving these talks on generative AI know uses and and one of the common things that i both address and i also feel questions on is the safety and security of of the generative ai tools and and ali you you kind of mentioned earlier about being you know the difference in the licensing between being a business to business license versus the commercial license that most of us use when we jump on jump on and use these tools so when it comes to the YCN bot itself, um, what are you doing to to make it safe for users to go out and experiment with the generative AI tools that are out there?
2: I think there's a couple of bits to touch on here. One is around the multi-model strategy components. So YCN bot has been built so that it can connect by API to, to any model. Um, and then obviously when you contract on enterprise terms, then you're specifying that you're not prepared to allow your Prompt data to be used to improve and train the model, and the additional benefit, obviously, that everything that is um, prompted and then returned back is, is encrypted under all of the expectations that we would have. Um, that then gets extended through through to the Microsoft model as well, and and, it, and those those enterprise terms would be what we would expect when we integrate with any model. There's an interesting point I think is worth raising, which is it will be interesting to see how the what's the to describe it. As these lawsuits get brought to OpenAI, is there a possibility that in future we may see there being restrictions applied to some of these models because it is generating content that is contaminated? And if that is the case, products that are built on top of those models may they need to be restricted in some sort of way? And therefore, we are we're obviously in the very early stages at the moment of experimenting with this technology. And so, is there a we're maybe getting onto a bit of a crystal ball question here? But Is it possible that even though the interaction with these models is secure and under the right terms, actually the the training data that has been used could be brought into question that might mean that the use of those models needs to be thought about more deeply. And so having the ability to switch between different models, I think is going to be necessary in order to mitigate for the risk of that. We could even see there being a point where the most conservative of clients may say, we only want you to use a very uh, restricted model that you can confirm that all of the training data is legitimate, and we want that you to run that on your own infrastructure. Um, that is a potential extrapolation that we could see in the future, and it's one that we're, we're thinking about quite quite deeply. So we've obviously taken all of the steps that you would expect of anyone that's working with enterprise software today, and that's how we've, we've um, engaged with Microsoft. But we can see in the future there might be a need to think more deeply about the um, the quality of the training data of these underlying models,
0: and I'm wondering. I mean, again, you know, when you're talking restrictive, less restrictive type of type of models, I mean, if is there also a pricing component to that um, in terms of of what firms will will charge to use them?
2: Yeah, I I don't know enough yet about the cost of running these these different models, but I think you you had a guest on the Hyperdraft podcast uh, a couple of weeks ago, and they made an interesting point. I think you were talking about. Um, smaller models Mm -hmm. and one of the things that we are thinking about at the moment is would we potentially have smaller uh, more restrictive models that are finely tuned that are able to perform very narrow tasks and perhaps they're the ones that get used for the most sensitive of use cases but they could potentially be quite expensive to train so there might be a cost element there Um, anecdotally when it comes to to cost what I would say is that um, just the experiments that we've had so far have been pretty pretty low cost in terms of how much is your um, technology that we're using. In fact, the, the bill is pretty minimal. So we know that um, at, at the moment the cost isn't that great, but I can imagine that potentially increasing quite significantly as we start to use more GPU resource.
3: And then I think I would, I would just add is if we allocate some monetary value to every word that exists on the internet, and I'm talking like 0.0000001 cents 00000001 and there is a mechanism for that to be returned to the copyright holder the person who wrote the blog the person who wrote the story the person who did the academic research whatever it is then clearly the cost of these models on inference uh, right now it's very low and you know, it's, it's, it's nothing it's less than a month for us you know uh or maybe don't put that in it's very low i don't know if that's something compared to that but it's very low um but you can see how if, if we just sort of crystal ball gaze, if the authors who are saying their work has been um, taken and there's a corporate issue in this and the big tech vendors want to retain a lot of that work because it's the models quality, there might have to be some form of negotiation and remuneration back to the data owner and that might be in the form of pennies, but it might still be something that has to happen. Um, similar to the music industry, where now you're getting royalties that are in the sort of pennies and pounds. That kind of capability could evolve. Yes, the models take the data and aggregate it um, and the output, it might be difficult to link it exactly back to the trained data, but it's not impossible, and there might be a way to do that um, on a rough, a rough basis. And so, if you think about the fact that we might have to remunerate the information creator, and if we don't do that, I don't know what the future of these models is, because I'm not going to be creating any more information on the internet <laughs> for somebody else to benefit. So, if we think about that, the cost of inference has got to go up. It's got to, it's got to trend up quickly. We're getting a really cheap free version of it. I don't want to use the word Napster, but um, you know it's it, but but it's it's got to trend up. Um, or as Ollie said, the models have just got to become more narrow and focused. On if you go into Hugging Face today, um, Hugging Face is a, a publicly available um, data asset place with different licenses of da- data, for training data. There's three thousand. Looked this morning, three thousand two hundred odd um, packages of data that are MIT licensed. So you know, for us sensible. The sensible thing to do for any business is take all of that train your own model get your own data that you own the copyright for refine it fine-tune it see if that model is any good see if it can do some tasks then you've you know your heads you're protected but um there's also lots of data on hugging face that's under more restrictive licenses apache etc and it's going to be more difficult to use those for commercial use um and not continue you know if you use an apache license that says that you've got to continue to open source anything that you do, which effectively, with for us, would mean know, all of our data needs to be open sourced. I don't know how we deal with that, so it gets very complicated. So I, I do think the costs are going to go
1: up. Yeah, we're we're almost in the equivalent of a zero interest rate uh, model, yeah. where you know <laughs> yeah. thing, things worked really well when money was was super cheap. Um, that don't work well when the interest rate is now at six percent. So yeah,
3: yeah. (laughs) I mean, it. it, And one of one of the things I think is fascinating that's just happened yesterday. Not to pick on certain companies, but there is a leading audiovisual vendor who have been in the news mainstream for injecting into their terms a, a clause that said any conversation that happens on their platform, platform similar to this, can be used to will be retained and can be used to improve and develop the services. That clause has been around, that boilerplate clause has been around for five years. Nobody's paid any attention to it. Yeah, this AI thing, it's not really real. What do you mean data can improve models? We don't really get it. And now it's hit the mainstream. Like yesterday, it's hit the mainstream. So there's going to be lots of people focusing on that and going, oh, is my is my data valuable? Do I need to retain it? Do I need to get some return and some remuneration from it if I'm going to allow algorithms to be trained to provide some form of service that sort of automates what we used to pay a lot of money for? As I think that's going to be really interesting, is um, the kind of consumerization of data labeling and the importance of it for algorithms and AI.
0: So clearly, <laughs> there's a lot to think about when it comes to AI models. What advice would you give to lawyers or other legal professionals who are interested in experimenting with AI in their practice? You know, how can they leverage the technology both responsibly and ethically?
1: At everybody all at once now. <laughs> Yeah, everybody no, I, I'm, jump I'm, in. <laughs> I was, and the conversation uh, yeah, ends. I, can ask it. <laughs> I,
2: I think what... So if, if I was a lawyer wanting to understand how I could leverage this capability, I would be investing my time in learning how to prompt as effectively as possible. How am I going to want to develop this technology myself? Pro- probably not. Hopefully I've got a great team like the one at Travis Smith that I can lean on for that. But my input into the development of the products would be around the prompting. And one of the things that Sean, Sam and I were talking about just this week was there is going to be significant IP generated in sophisticated prompts on their own. And so actually perhaps some of the products that are going to be coming to market over the next six to 12 months, a lot of the investment is going into building sophisticated prompts that will be abstracted by user interface controls. So. As a lawyer, spending time on investing your energy into understanding how you can leverage technology with more sophisticated prompts will probably be to the benefit of your organization.
1: You know, we've seen the big players in legal information, you know, Westlaw, Lexus, Bloomberg, others, lots of others, jumping in on the generative AI game. But as as developers, as users, um, what would you like to see them working on that would help all of you and your duties to to help uh, advance the technology there, Trevor Smith. Sam, you want to take a stab at that one?
4: Yeah, I think obviously with these, with these vendors, I think the key for them is if they're going to invest time in legal research is to focus on dealing with hallucination problem. I think that's the, the big focus. I understand they're already doing that to a degree as well, but I think for us, we can't really consume those legal research tools um, you know, properly without having a Better understanding of how they're going to deal with the hallucination problem i understand that we've obviously come up with one exciting mechanism uh of how to deal with that and people can read about it in our paper but i think at the moment it's it's just that inaccuracy point and it's, it can be really subtle it's not as simple as just doing a case law name search it's it's much much more complicated than that because sometimes the facts can just have such a small difference if you just added a couple of words here or there which aren't accurate i think this part is really key because i think. Obviously, the judicial process will have a role to play here as well, but this really could be scary if it goes badly. If everybody starts relying on these open AI tools to summarize legal information, and then if people use those in a legal argument and the judges actually accept that argument, that becomes part of common law. And at that point, we're literally allowing AI to write our legal system for us, write the laws that we all have to comply with. So I think what I'd love to see from Westlaw and organizations like that some real serious thought taken to any feature they offer i think they are doing that which is great but just whatever else they can do to really stop this hallucination problem i'd probably encourage them in a way because of the risks associated with it if they actually can't deal with the hallucination problem i think they should probably maybe even think about putting the feature out there in the first place because it's just we're already seeing it and i think we've seen examples so far where judges have caught it which is great but what does frighten me a lot more is situations where judges don't catch it and then we have a situation where we're trying to rewrite the last 20 years of legal precedence. One one of the things that I'm struggling with, and you mentioned, Greg, that
3: you were involved in a librarian conference. And actually, there's a there's a, a librarian at the William and Mary Law School um, who, who wrote a very interesting article, the Wilf's Law Library. And she wrote it in 2019, long before LLMs became a thing. And the article, and you could perhaps share it, is who owns the law? And I think that's a really interesting question when it comes to, to Westlaw and lexis, which is, do they, do they own the law? Does the legislator own the law? And if you think about what LLMs and AI are doing to many other industries, investors right now aren't looking at the intermediaries who take data and then resell it. So apparently, you know, under the hood for like, you know, Travelocity and, and Expedia and Booking and all these companies is a data provider who provides them a lot of information about flights and hotels and all of that sort of stuff. And very and, and so the data provider's market cap is $2 billion. All these intermediaries is like 50 for $60 because they've got the customer, they've got the margin, and, and actually the data provider doesn't want to engage and deal with that. And so if you think about that model, the investors are saying the data provider's now the value creation and the intermediaries are perhaps in, in trouble and, and struggling a little bit. And so if you think about um, how do you apply that to our industry, if is an algorithm that can take a problem and can compute that against act, act, accurate up-to-date legislation, regulation and common law to provide an answer that is as good, if not better, but certainly as good as what we could do ourselves, who gets the commercial benefit of that? Who gets the gain? Uh, and it's effectively the data, provided it's the person who owns the law. This is maybe 10, 20, 30 years in the future. But um, that that's something I think we have to figure out. And so um. We believe that the law is open, you know, there's an open justice movement in the UK and we believe that the law should be open and that it should be accessible to everybody. And it means that any business could take that feed it into a model and use it to compute outcomes. And I think that has to be the, the future. But I'd be very interested to see 20 or 30 years from now if actually large tech organisations could kind have of effectively owned the law. With these algorithms, able to 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 sort of ask and answer legal questions on a sort of more automated basis, um, I'm not sure how equitable that equitable that's going
1: to be. Yeah, and that uh, that that paper, and we will put a link on that is uh, Leslie Street and uh, David Hansen. Uh Leslie's still at William and Mary, and I think David's still at Duke. Um, great great paper and. <laughs> As you said, ahead of his time, and I can tell you that everyone loves the fact that you cited a a law librarian's paper uh, in in your research.
0: (laughs) So, given all that we've been talking about, uh, what's the future vision for developing testing and applying the YCN bot to help transform legal work over time? What's, you know, what's the focus?
4: So obviously we've looked at TS bot, sorry, YCM bot, we obviously call it TS bot because we're Travis Smith, but uh, we looked at it and it's producing a tremendous amount of value, but it is limited in its sense that it cannot consume documents. So we've actually looked at it and we're working on a bunch of other tools that can be used to consume documents instead of chat. So I think that's the biggest feedback we've had internally. And it's one of the things we're prioritizing now is opening up features where you can just, for example upload a series of documents, ask a series of questions about those documents, and then get this back in an in a automated response. So, for example, one of the things we're doing is you can upload 50 NDAs, you can ask a series of questions about those NDAs, and the, then what will happen is these GPT models will go and iterate through every single document, ask those questions of every document, and then you can get um, the answers back in the user interface, or you can get an Excel export. So I think that's where we almost see the future of this product, because... Well, I guess we do see TSBot as having a role, but I think this will be more of a focus because I think TSBot will be still there for quick questions, for things where you don't require a full-on document upload. But I think if we also look at some of the processes we do, it's crucial that we actually have a process to upload a massive, large amount of documents, and then we can get questions answered of each of those documents.
1: And, and I love the fact that you that you use TS Bot. Uh, and to replace the your company name because it just drives home the why it says your company name first. So, so if I had it, it would be the J W Bot, right? That's <laughs> what we would call it.
4: Exactly.
0: Is there any thought to sort of looking kind of internally at at, at you know the firm's own documents or, or administrative um, things, uh, or as opposed to client related documentation? So,
3: so just, I guess it's looking internally to the extent that we take your data to tokenize it in fine-tuned models I think certainly where we've got data in our document management system where we are 100% confident that we own the copyright because not everything in our document management system is ours right. sometimes it's the other side right. sometimes it's the client so you know we might use it to improve and refine models we we had this question actually from one lawyer is that like, can we just take our precedent bank now and just train a model and then ask the model the question to give us the output for the precedent bank and um, the point I made was that you know, the benefit of uh the large language models is that they understand the concept of market, they understand aggression, they understand friendly and buyer I mean, friendly and seller-friendly. Um, just by taking a, a an untrained model and taking those precedents, it's not going to know any of that. So it's not going to be any more sophisticated than what you've got just now. And this is the point that we talked about earlier. I think you talked about a previous uh contributor talking, you know, talking about existing tooling and is natural language input to get a clause in a precedent bank better than 50 tags curated, maintained, kept up to date by experienced knowledge lawyers thinking about common law developments, legislation developments, regulatory developments and applying that to that precedent bank. Um, I'm not 100% sure whether the natural language interface to get that output is a significant gain efficiency over just going into the precedent bank yourself and, and looking for it. So... Um, but certainly on the training side, I think that might be, you know, the, the, to, to complement an existing large model, I think that's an area that we might look at in the future.
1: Well, guys, we all, uh, we ask all of our guests the crystal ball question, um, and it is that time uh, otherwise, if we continue this conversation, we'll have to split this podcast into two episodes. Uh, <laughs> so, so I want uh, all of you to uh, pull out your crystal balls and peer into the future for us. Um, and you can either answer it individually or, or as a group. Um, what are some of the challenges or changes that you see, I, I would say specifically with AI in in the law in the next two to five years?
2: I'll, I'll go first, Greg. I think it's what I touched on earlier, which is the adoption of these models whilst there's still potentially question marks over the training data. So I think we're at a stage where there's clearly a rush to deploy this technology as quickly as possible. There'll be a few bumps in the road. Clearly, there's enduring innovation here, so it's going to have a fundamental impact in the long run. But there's some figuring out to be done about how to safely apply the models. And that's where I think being model agnostic is going to be Critical to the success of any business that's going to leverage this technology,
3: um, I would say that I feel like that there's a bit of a Napster music industry moment happening with existing advanced LLMs and any information-based industry, and I think that over the next five or ten years, we're going to have to figure out whether we want uh, Spotify and an Apple Music dominating all of those industries. Or whether we want the fair and equitable distribution of AI to go um to be to be to be spread out more evenly across businesses. Um and that's why we open source, that's why we care about open source, that's why we want the law to be public. And I think um that's gonna be a really interesting development to, 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 to watch over. I do think, you know, when my kids um get to college age in, in about twenty years, I think there's gonna be so much change um from where we are today. But it's exciting, um, and and I think it's positive.
4: Yeah, in my opinion, I think it will kind of follow the the progression of just the general AI industry. And I think it's really interesting there because obviously, when I was you know first starting in my career, chatbots were a thing back then. Obviously, they were nowhere near as sophisticated as they are now. And I think in 2012, I think it must have been I was developing chatbots, and then I think we gradually you see how far it's progressed, and that has been impressive. But one of the things I wonder now is if we're going to move beyond that. And what I mean by that is there's a limitation at the moment. If you use these chatbots, you're still heavily dependent on a human per, a human agent going in there, developing the right prompts. And then they still have to... So if, some, if you go to a lawyer, for example, and say, you know, you have this case, they're still going to have to break down that case into a series of prompts, which can then be asked of these GPT models. And I think that's the same for most industries. And I kind of wonder if Auto GPT. so this is obviously an open source project where you can give it high-level goals and it can actually go out there and achieve those goals. So, for example, if you say you have a goal to grow your business is like, you know, marketing uh, process by blah, blah, it can actually go out there and take certain actions to do that. And the idea being, for example, if you want to grow your online presence, it may actually go out there and start, you know, writing tweets for you. It might actually start posting on LinkedIn. Um, and I kind of wonder if that's going to be the next level in terms of AI. And I kind of wonder if there'll be more focus on actual agents where you can, maybe this is not two, three years, maybe this is five, 10 years, but I I do think that eventually someone's going to have to deal with the problem of, you know, the limitation rather of people being so involved, prompting the algorithm correctly. And I think we could see something where these algorithms are so sophisticated, where you can give it a high level goal. It can break down those goals into a series of subtasks, ask the user to approve those subtasks, then actually go out and do some of the actions that are required. I think it might happen in law, it might not, but I kind of see that's where it's going to go, to be honest.
0: Well, we may have to have you guys back in a year or so just to see, uh, see how, how things turn out. <laughs> so Sean Curran, Ollie Bethel, and Sam Lansley, thank you very much for taking the time to speak with us here at The Geek & Review. Thank you. And of course, thanks to all of you, our listeners, for taking the time to listen to The Geek & Review podcast. If you enjoy the show, share it with a colleague, We'd love to hear from you, so reach out to us on social media. I can be found primarily on LinkedIn, but also at gaybauerm on Twitter and at mgaybauer66 on threads.
1: And I can be reached on LinkedIn as well and Glambert on x slash twitter or whatever it's called this week we gotta change that and uh i but uh i'm I'm more and more on a Glambert pod on thread so uh gentlemen if uh someone wants to uh, learn more reach out and find you online uh where's the best place to to do that
4: yeah the best place would be on linkedin so if you could please follow our travis smith's ai page that would be great
0: And listeners, you can also leave us a voicemail on our Geek & Review hotline at 713-487-7821. And as always, the music you hear is from Jerry David DeSica. Thank you, Jerry.
1: Thanks, Jerry. All right, Marlene, I'll talk to you later.